Hello there everyone, and welcome back to a new season of The Longest Night, a Game of Thrones show in conjunction with our friends at the Narth subreddit and the Podbreed network. My name is Rob and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT. That is at LongestNightGOT if you want to get in touch with us away from our episodes. Our title music was written and performed by my good friend Edward Thomas and you can find a link to all of his work in the show notes. And you will have heard at the top of the show there that we have now joined the Podbreed Network, which is a group Mm -hmm. of roughly 30 podcasts who are currently small and aiming to grow a little bit. And yeah, so, yeah, and we're, we're we're small and we're trying to grow, so we decided to Absolutely. join them when a slot became available. So thank you very much to the Podbreed team for bringing us on board. Um, yeah, thank you very much. As I said, this is the season premiere for us, and of mm. course we'll be talking about the season premiere of Game of Thrones. So we will press on because we've got to press play on season five. <laughs> This week, we are going to be discussing Season 5, Episode 1 of Game of Thrones, entitled The Wars to Come. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and directed by Michael Slovis, making his first appearance in the credits. And it was first broadcast on the 12th of April 2015, and it was watched by a new show record of 8 million people. Wow. Lizzie, what are your thoughts on The Wars to Come? How how many times have you watched it now? Just the once or twice? Um, Watched it twice, and I think I... My opinion didn't really change on it the second time. Sometimes it does, sometimes I warm to it, sometimes I get a bit cooler on it. Both times I thought it was an unassuming start to the season. I, I don't want to call it a weak episode, because I don't think it is a weak episode. It's just that... It has a lot of setup to do after the end of season four, you know, with yeah. Tyrion and Pentos and Cersei taking center stage at King's Landing. But I feel like because of that, there's not really a particular standout moment from this episode that puts it alongside some of the more memorable ones we've had recently. Maybe we've been spoiled by the end of season four, but I think we definitely yeah. have been spoiled by the end oh, of yeah, season four. Yeah. But I think as well, um, the one thing for me that kind of defines this episode and something that you've mentioned there is that one of your least favourite episodes of the show so far was the first mm. episode, which Winter is Coming. Yeah. And this has a similar-ish job to do because at the end of season four, massive reset button gets pressed and lots of characters end up in very new places and it means that it's less a case of characters kind of drifting through the story and encountering each other this is very much a new beginning like Tyrion and Varys are in a different continent um it's Stannis is at the wall and we know we'll find out next week um that you know Arya will be arriving in Braavos and obviously we have to go to King's Landing where there's no Tywin Lannister anymore and mm-hmm. so there are lots of there are lots of wholesale changes at the end of season 4 that I think season 5 will have to spend a little bit of time picking up the pieces from and obviously we lost a lot of interesting characters at the end of season four like Tywin like Oberyn like Egret, um and Shay as well who were not always main characters but were massive parts of the show's furniture and there aren't yeah, any new faces yeah. in their place yet 
And so Mm -hmm. it means that, yeah, like you say, I think that this kind of does a job of being a season premiere. It's kind of patient, doesn't do a lot, but doesn't do a lot wrong. Um, There's a little bit of intrigue and it kind of nudges things into place. I definitely get the feeling that it's a new era for the show. The sets feel bigger. Oh, absolutely. The colour palette feels more muted than normal. Uh, Mm. New storytelling devices like flashbacks that we've never really done before. As far as I'm concerned, in full hindsight, this is the beginning of the second era of Game of Thrones and it does feel like it's got a lot to carry and it means that, yeah, there isn't a lot of... There isn't a lot of drama, really. There's lots of stuff and lots of checking in, and there's an there's a level of interest. I think this is one of the first season premieres we've had where the intentions for the whole season are just kind of spelled out in front of you. The show never usually yeah. holds your hand yeah. quite like that, and I mean it does set up and pay off, and they do efficient oh, yeah, storytelling. But this is this is the most efficient I think the show has been so far, and I think it may take a little bit of an adjustment period for you mm-hmm. because um, it does mean that yeah we get the moment with John and Mance at the end and you get the another argument between Cersei and Jamie and you get the potential of uh, Tyrion journeying uh, to Marine in the future but it's all stuff that's forecasted and predicted mm. and you know I like I, I, I do like this episode a lot but yeah as a season premiere not my favourite. I think that this is very much a... I think I'm going to start referring to them as chessboard episodes because they always... David Benioff and Dan Weiss, they always refer to the whole thing as a chessboard and about moving yeah. pieces yeah. and stuff. And this is very much a, a chessboard episode. So I definitely, definitely get that feeling. The man who murdered our father, he tore us apart. He's the enemy. I've been telling you for years. You've been defending him for this years. exactly what they want. And now our father is dead. That little monster is out there somewhere drawing breath. Did you set him free? Tyrion may be a monster, but at least he killed our father on purpose. You killed him by mistake. The stupidity. We will start this week in King's Landing, where, in a flashback first... Cersei is shown as a child, and alongside her friend, she enters the hut of a witch and demands to be told her future. The witch explains that Cersei will marry the king and eventually be queen for a time until a younger, more beautiful queen usurps her. The witch also explains that Cersei's children will have golden crowns and golden shrouds. And in the present day, it's the day of Tywin Lannister's funeral. Cersei chastises Jaime for setting Tyrion free, which allowed him to kill Tywin with the crossbow, and at the wake, she reunites with Lancer Lannister, who has changed his nature significantly after joining a religious group known as the Sparrows. He's also changed his hair. He's had a bit of a haircut. Um, Yes, and later, Marjorie walks in on Loras and Olivar in bed, and Loras claims that with Tywin dead, he can no longer be forced to marry Cersei, and Marjorie reveals that she's working on a plan to ensure that Cersei won't trouble them anymore and won't be in their way. Mm. So the stuff in King's Landing, first, I think the most biggest thing to mention is that we have a flashback, the first flashback in the whole show. I know, I know. And so far it's the Um, only one. Yeah, It's funny, I didn't realise it was the first time we'd had a flashback sequence until you pointed it out to me. I think it's... It's maybe just that I'm so used to them in other big TV dramas, you know, like Mad Men, The Sopranos, they're full of them. Yeah. That 
it didn't strike it didn't surprise me or strike me as odd to see one here but I suppose it does make sense that they need to cover a lot more ground to fill in some of Cersei's backstory now that she's um, I guess taking the reins of the the King's Landing storyline we know a lot more about Tyrion's backstory I think and maybe a little bit of Jamie's, but yeah Cersei's backstory it feels like they haven't covered that all that much and so this seems like a good time to do it yeah it feels like it adds another edge to her character as well because Cersei's never yeah, particularly yeah. struck me as superstitious no but this is a very superstitious and young Cersei mm. and it's a curious point in the story to drop it in uh, sort of after her father's dead Tyrion's fled the capital and it, yeah it is an interesting note to start the season on I think because um, Cersei yeah, as much as Cersei is a main character mm. the end of last season was the, the, the big cliffhanger was where is Arya going and where's Tyrion, where's Tyrion going and we mm. start with Cersei who we kind of know what was going to happen it was going to be fallout from Tywin's death but they decide to pick up with her first which I think is very interesting uh, sometimes you know they'll have filmed scenes and thought about it and then they'll have gone actually could we put this scene first because then you know we don't want a flashback in the middle of the episode so they may they may have done it for structural reasons um that's true but you know in the end story reasons are probably more important than structural ones so we'll we'll go with the story reasons um i just want to mention uh i did mention it in our season four awards show episode uh just in case someone anyone missed it uh we are going to declare something of a soft moratorium on book talk so I'll bring the books up wherever they're relevant, which I'm about to in a second. But instead of discussing whether plot points happened or not in the books, uh, we'd waste and lose a lot of time with season five because, as everyone listening knows, the books and the show really, like, you know, they, 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 they made quite a divergence in season four, but they make a big, a bigger divergence from season five onwards. So we'd waste a lot of time talking about whether certain plot points happened or not. Whereas... With this, I think, but, you know, it's only a soft moratorium because I think it is relevant to mention that there are lots of flashbacks and dream sequences in the books because, uh, obviously, the books follow each character's internal POV, their internal monologue, whereas with David Benioff and Dan Weiss, they came and said, well, we can't really do POV on a TV show because we can't, unless we have a voiceover, we can't do internal thoughts and internal monologues. And so they said they were going to try and avoid using dreams and flashbacks and things like that because they couldn't quite find a way in their heads to make it all fit the tone of the show without it. Yeah. You know, so, um, but, so this is the first time where they've kind of broken their own rules in that sense. And I do think that it marks out season five, episode one as the beginning of the second era of the show where the influence of David Benioff and Dan Weiss on the story, it feels greater to me. They feel like they have a little bit more, you know, they're four or five seasons deep now. So they maybe have a little bit more creative confidence to start making decisions that they may have been hesitant to make when yeah. they were just setting out to, to adapt. So we have the scene of Tywin's funeral where Jamie and Cersei, uh, well, Cersei has a go at Jamie, so they're back to arguing again. I don't know if you took any notes about the fact that just last week they made up and now Tywin's dead and all the goodwill 
that even, you know, Cersei said, I don't give a hell about my father, I care about Jamie, but then she actually gets faced with the reality of it, which is that now she has lost her father, and it turns out, oh, he did mean a lot to her after all, so <laughs> how do yeah, you feel about the reversal? Well, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like, you'd never guess this was the winning side. Again. Yeah, again. And also, here I was thinking that maybe Cersei had a part to play in the freeing of Tyrion. Oh, okay. Uh, well, because they've, they've kiboshed that for you, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I I think it just kind of got put in my head at the end of last season. Like, you know, they had that big disagreement, and then by the end of the episode, he's dead. You're thinking, mm. surely there's something in there, but no, that just shoots that down. It's kind of okay. I'll um, I'll drop that theory then. But yeah, <laughs> I think it's. It's Cersei realising that as much as she's got one problem out of the way, she's got 99 others to deal with. And yes, three of them are um, in this episode. Yes. Um, it's. I find it kind of funny how Loras Tyrell is trying his hardest at the wake to come up with his best fake speech about how Tywin was a, a force, a real force oh, to be reckoned God. with. <laughs> and then she just sort of ignores Pycelle and then she ignores Kevin Lannister. But she can't mm-hmm. ignore... The return of Lancel Lannister, who has cut all no, his hair no. off and no longer looks like Link uh, from the Zelda games. Um, so, just well, a little excuse bit. Excuse me, princess. <laughs> just a little bit of um, just a little bit of an explanation. Uh, it kind of gets mentioned in the episode, um, but not much. Where basically, you know, at the Battle of Blackwater, he was hit by an arrow and he, he was yeah. injured, or he yeah. was hit by a sword or something, and basically. The backstory is is that his wounds festered and he became very ill, and then oh, when he healed himself, he well, he mentioned it in this episode his role in Cersei's life in the first couple of seasons, and that he wanted to repent, and so he sought out the religious group in King's Landing, and they cut all his hair off, and now he wears a potato sack, and he's got a deeper voice. And a slightly, I think he's got a slightly stronger sense of a thousand yard stare about him. Uh, Definitely. And he's come back into Cersei's life. What did you make of Lancel Lannister's return? It was probably the biggest shock of the episode, apart from that dragon jump scare. But <laughs> yeah, as you say, gone are the dashing blonde locks and the handsome androgynous features. And mm. now he's just got shorn hair and soulless eyes. Um, I'm a bit ashamed to say that I haven't really thought of him at all since since Blackwater, which you just mentioned. As you know, even in those earlier seasons, he wasn't much of a vital presence in the show. I wouldn't say. Mm. Uh, you know, at best, he was a sort of Smithers-like comic relief lackey to Robert. But yeah, it's an intriguing new angle, and yeah, judging by his look and demeanor, I wonder if it's if it's less of a religious group and more of a cult. <laughs> yes, um, religious group was being polite. You will let you will yeah, you will, you will yeah. come to know the sparrows, and you will come <laughs> to meet them and spend some time with them. And I think you will uh, find out that that is exactly the case. Um, oh dear! The thing that f- I think that's most striking about it, though, to me, is again, it's just, I think it's a particularly brilliant performance because he had quite a. A high, it wasn't high pitched, but he had he had such a demeanor about him that he always felt very uncertain, like he was always yeah, afraid of was, being shouted at for something that he said. He was said. quite sort of foppish, I'd say. Yeah, and kind of skittish as well. And now he's yeah, just this yeah. kind of robotic religious guy with lots of mm. dark secrets. 
Um, but yeah, I think he's a he's one to watch for this season. Um, something else that we haven't mentioned yet is the scene between Loris and Marjorie. Um, the shots of Olivar and Loris in bed together, bit hot under the collar, sat on the yeah yeah sat on the sofa there. Um, I thought the most interesting thing about this scene was seeing Loris and Marjorie interact behind closed doors. The veil disappears and they can both talk shit about how much they are so tired of Cersei and they're just so bored of whatever Tywin Lannister was doing and they're so yeah. they're so brother and sister in this scene and Marjorie's just kind of like could you not keep this could you not be a bit more discreet lads come on and then Loris is sort of saying oh who cares like everyone knows everyone's secrets around here why try to hide it and I think he's totally right everybody knows about Loris' sexuality and so he's no longer gonna hide behind He's, he's not going to pretend to be something he's not anymore, which I think is, you know, good on Loris. Um, Marjorie clearly not bothered about privacy, though. The way that she kind of like, there's no, oh, sorry, guys, I will leave you to it. It's very much just a, I'm in the room now. You need to stop what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And it's like, if, if you're going to be the queen, then you need to have that attitude. Yeah, it, it definitely. If that, That's uh, definitely how Marjorie looks at it. Um, yeah. What, what notes have you got about this scene? Well, like you say, um, they feel like, you know, everybody knows the secret anyway, the cat's out of the bag, and it's not like, you know, Cersei and Jamie Lannister, those two innocent folks who've got absolutely no secrets at all to, to hide from <laughs> the folks at King's Landing. Um, I mean, well, my prevailing thought at the end of the last season was surely Cersei's just going to, you know, tell them to sling the rocks or worse still, have them killed. But yeah. then we watched the trailer and we, we saw the um, the wedding of, or what we think is the wedding of Tom and, and Marjorie. So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what Marjorie's got planned. Is it is it to try and infiltrate the Lannister family by marrying Tom and? I, I couldn't well, possibly tell you. Well, I mean, we kind of knew that she was betrothed to Tommen anyway, um, yeah. because Lady Elena last season, when she revealed that she was the one who poisoned Joffrey, uh, she did say the next one will be much easier to handle. Um, and so, yeah, that, that that was planned. But I guess, you know, we'll have to await further developments on that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> there are faster ways to kill yourself. Not for a coward. You are many things, my friend, but not a coward. You never told me why you set me free. Your brother asked me to. Would have said no. <laughs> Refuse the Kingslayer a dangerous proposition. Not as dangerous as releasing me. Okay, across the narrow sea in Pentos, Tyrion wakes up inside the box to find that Varys has escorted him across the narrow sea, and he wakes up in Pentos, and more specifically in the mansion of Illyrio Mepatis. And Tyrion is drinking very heavily, and he's very nihilistic, and he says the the future is shit, and the world is terrible. Uh, but Varys attempts to convince him to put the wine down for a second and journey with him <laughs> to Marine to meet Daenerys Targaryen and see if she is a worthy ruler for Westeros. Um, not as much to read out this week as King's Landing. Um, Tyrion's got a beard. Tyrion yeah. has a beard. And Varys swears twice in this scene, which is more than I think we've heard him swear 
before in the whole show. Tyrion is miles down into nihilist depths, but he scrubs up yes. quite nicely when he's shaved, uh, well, mm-hmm. trimmed with his beard. And then it sets up for the whole destination for the season, which is that they're going to try and... I, th- I find it quite funny, which is that, like, the story hasn't reached Daenerys yet, so we're going to take it to her. <laughs> um, bit of a shame that we didn't get to see Roger Allen reprise his role as Illyria Mopatis. We are at his mansion, but we just don't see him this time. Um, mm-hmm. So where did you, you expected Tyrion to wake up in Braavos? So you weren't far off. You, you, were, you were a little, you were a few miles down the coast. But uh, yeah. Pentos is as good as, so I'm, I'm going to say that you were 70% right on that one. You got the hey. you got the general destination right. You're just a little, little off on your map. Your, your compass just wasn't quite working. Um, <laughs> but you're still in the right place. Um, so, yeah, what, what do you make of this stuff? Can I just give special mention to Varys in this episode? You know, when I was um, I was digging through quotes to decide my line of the episode, I was struck by how many like one-liners, um, you know, they both have in this in these scenes, but especially Varys, you know, choice lines such as Tyrion says, "Do you know what it's like to stuff your shit through one of those air holes?" To which Varys replies, "No, I only know what it's like to pick up your shit and throw it overboard." <laughs> it's just. It really kind of puts over the fact that, yeah, they've been on a, a ship for, I'm guessing, sort of weeks at a time, and yeah. Tyrion's been stuck in a crate and having to pass literal shit through Tavares. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's I, I wouldn't really call it an odd couple pairing as much as this show has, you know, been known to do that, and mm. I'll, I'll talk more about that later. But I feel like there are sort of perfect for one another in that Tyrion like you say has gone completely into nihilism whereas I maybe would have accused Varys of that earlier although maybe Varys is just he's kind of a a cynic maybe I don't think he's a full on full blown nihilist he's not given up on the world he's not saying that everything is shit and we're beyond hope it's just you know, he's seen the, the machinations of the world and he's been involved with it. And yeah, he knows that you can't always um, you can't always trust people you come across. And so, yeah, I think they've they've got an interesting little dynamic and I'm very much looking forward to seeing more of this. Yeah, I think with Varys, this scene is quite revealing and it's the first time he's actually revealed his intentions. Like he has, actu- he has actual desires in this he's always been very duplicitous and he's always been very morally uncertain where it's like he's friends with Tyrion but friends up to a point and then he testifies against him to protect himself but then frees mm. him and just at that point where he decides to turn and get on the boat it's like he's realized in his head it's like we're bored I'm bored of this I've played court too long and now it's maybe time to get what's mine. And so he's obviously heard lots of stories about Daenerys and he thinks, oh, maybe Tyrion and Daenerys could be a good a good combo together. And I, yeah, yeah. I don't blame him. I think, you know, at the line where he says, who says anything about him? I think that it's a little bit of a moment for Varys where he's finally been able to get away from King's Landing and doesn't have to lie or pretend anymore. He's in Pentos where, you know, 
the spy Littlefinger spies aren't following him, and so he can uh, he can be honest with Tyrion and just say, look, this is what I think is right for the world. Let's go and try and make it work together. And then Tyrion has a great little line where he says, you know, uh, can I can I just drink myself to death on the road to Marine instead? Like, can I can I can I do that? Can you give me that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's like the biggest challenge for Varys now is how do you unite these people who probably want nothing to do with one another? I don't think Daenerys is particularly fond on the idea of working with a Lannister, and Tyrion has just, as we say, he's much given up i'm sure if he if it was up to him he would just jump in the sea and do you know he'd get a good good go at jumping in the sea from those high cliffs so uh, yeah (laughs) or maybe he'd like to jump into a sea of wine at the moment i think he's oh god yeah he's he's much like his sister in that regard (laughs) do you know i remember um there is a book i've got um where it's a fun little kind of picture game of thrones book and there is a graph towards the end of the book and it's how many glasses of wine are consumed respectively by Cersei and Tyrion across their times oh, across God. the series and whether which one wins, uh, which episodes they drink wine in and which ones they don't. <laughs> <laughs> and as we know, Daenerys isn't interested in wine because it's usually people trying to poison her. So, you know, yes. they're not, they're not going to get on. No, uh, lovely Dom from Peep Show was unsuccessful in season one with poisoning. Indeed, it. look that up, guys. Bit of trivia. Goodbye, Lord Wilson. Thank you for all you've done for me. I have done nothing more than my duty, my lady. I have no doubt that on my return, Robin's skills will have improved immeasurably. He'll be safe here. As for his skills, I make no promises. <laughs> We're going to go back across the Narrow Sea temporarily to the Vale, where Sansa and Littlefinger are present at Robin Arryn's sword training lessons, and Robin is, predictably, struggling, and Jon Royce agrees to take Robin as his ward. Littlefinger then escorts Sansa by carriage to their next location, which we don't know where that is yet, and on the road they pass by Brienne and Podrick, who are unsure of where to go next, but are also completely unaware that one of the Stark children has just driven by them and uh, <laughs> gone off to somewhere new. So, yeah, not not much going on in the Vale, really. Um, Robin Arryn's still pretty rubbish with a sword and shield, uh, but at least he's safe in the Vale while they remain... Uh, he's trying, God bless him. He is trying. You can't, you can't yeah. blame a guy for trying. No, I can't blame a guy for trying. And I also can't blame a guy for having Lysa Arryn as his mother, so there's that no, too. No, of course. Um, but you know they seem pretty secure that he's safe in the Vale. I do kind of like the um, the stuff in the Vale this week because like with everything that's gone on like at Castle Black and everything that's going on in uh, Essos now and everything that's going on in King's Landing, it's like getting to the Vale. It's like ah, oh, nothing's happening here. It's just people doing regular stuff. You've got Robin doing his sword training, Santa and Littlefinger just kind of sat around while there's people in the background kind of knocking away, doing some smith work. It's yeah. all luscious and green, um, and yeah, the, I think I these kind of moments in Game of Thrones they become increasingly valuable as the action ramps up and as it gets towards the end. You know, the the, the quiet moments in the rural countryside, of which you get more across the show with various characters. It is nice to just kind of sit and bask in the world a little bit, where because I think this episode is very plot focused, that the moments where there isn't much plot really it's just Littlefinger mm-hmm. and Sansa sat around 
they're not sat around for long, but the moment that they are sat around, it's nice to just be surrounded by green trees, nice blowy wind, a water feature, yeah. you know, that a, a teenager struggling to throw a sword, you know. Um, bit of comedy watching Robin struggle with that. Um, still got still a Dark Sansa, by the way, uh, with the black hair. She's... Um, <laughs> Now in proper lighting, and so we can see that it is it is dyed black hair. Um, yeah, yeah. Where do you think they are? Where do you think they're going? I don't know. Um... Littlefinger, as Sansa says to Littlefinger that Littlefinger had told Lord Royce that they were heading to the Fingers, but they're heading west, mm. which is the opposite direction than the Fingers. So they're heading away from the fingers are up the east coast of Westeros and so they're heading away from the east coast they're heading west somewhere so they're heading towards the shoulder sorry God I'll, I'll, get, I'll get my coat I'll get my coat that took me about five <laughs> seconds to work out because it's really funny because there's a bit of Westeros that's called the neck and so I thought oh really yeah so <laughs> oh dear Oh, Westeros geography, everybody. Well, give me a clue. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try and guess because I don't want to spoil it. But is it somewhere we've seen before? It is. Yeah, it is somewhere we've seen before. <sighs> Ooh, that's gonna have me thinking. Like I say, I'm not gonna guess because I don't want to be like throwing names at you and you'd be like, yes, yes, no, you know. Yeah, I think we bored um, everybody with that for a full seven minutes in our season four awards show where it was just <laughs> I don't know me about and that. my partner reading names out to you until you were uh, until we ran out of names. <laughs> <laughs> well, people don't know we're doing that at the end of episode, every episode now. So. <laughs> yes, that's a new Get feature. Get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's that one scene where, as we mentioned, it's that same ships in the night trope that they've they've been so fond of in recent seasons. And it just so happens to be in this scene when Brienne is talking about her disillusionment with the quest. And then... Um, Sansa just happens to sort of slowly drive past. It's such a horrible little metaphor for Brienne's purpose that she's always like just out of reach of what she actually intends to, you know, wants to get. Yes, uh, we, they have done this a couple of times, and I think this is the most on the nose where it's not just Definitely. a bit of. I mean, obviously, it is a bit of circumstance and a bit of a coincidence, but it's just. Not only has Sansa gone right past the person who's looking for her, but she's gone right past the person who's looking for her at the point where the person who's looking for her is going, God, I wish I could find that person I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Must be around here somewhere. <laughs> yes, uh, they, they, I'll just check under that rock there. Oh, no, still no Sansa. Also, um, just a, a quick little thought. What do you think about the decline of the odd couple in this show? I feel like... Podrick and Brienne are kind of the last one left, and Brienne's clearly still miffed at Podrick for forgetting to bring the horses to Iceland that one time. And <laughs> it's it's kind of um, yeah, they're both visibly drained after travelling all this way, only to have one Stark girl turn them down and you know miss another by a few yards. It's almost like the show is sort of coming to its senses and thinking, you know, maybe we could have these pairings that actually make sense, like Varys and Tyrion. Mm. Imagine that. Um, I think the, as you say, the decline of the odd couple, because we've had uh, the Hound and Arya, Jamie and Brienne, yep. you know, yep. um, uh, John and Egret for a short time, you know, that, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. There's lots of characters who are very good foils for each other, but I think that 
it's kind of a, kind of a natural consequence of the story reaching its halfway point and resolving. Yeah. And so now things have to split off again. And we might be seeing more of these odd couples on the road. For example, Tyrion and Varys, Brienne and Podrick. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably going to have to go somewhere else now. And yeah, like you say, Brienne and Podrick, their, their story was the only one really... Their story at the end of last season, it was kind of unresolved. And so there's no obvious point to pick up from other than just they have nowhere else to go. Yeah, and it's still unresolved because they've turned up at the Vale and the person they're looking for, well, she is there, but she's also not there in their eyes. So, yeah, what do they do? Do they just sit and twiddle their thumbs? It's like you either you either have to stay here and hope she'll turn up or well, what do you do? Do you go back to King's Landing? That it seems like a... A bit of a futile mission, either way. You mentioned there that Tyrion, uh, not Tyrion, that Podrick and Brienne may be twiddling their thumbs. Mm. We're going to come back to that line at some point this season. I think it will be okay. a good point. That there will be a point where we will. I will bring this up again about them twiddling oh, their thumbs. Oh no. <laughs> 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 we'll bring it up at the relevant point. I don't want to be, get too spoilery. But yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that. Sorry, that's really funny. I wish I could have kept a better poker face, but it's so funny. Oh. So instead of going to the fingers, they'll be going to the thumbs. The thumbs, yes. Yeah. We're, we're not only Westeros geography, but Westeros anatomy, everyone. Um. <laughs> he did not risk his life fighting for his freedom so cowards in masks could take it away. And I did not take up residence in this pyramid so I could watch the city below decline into chaos. What was the name of the man you lost? White rat, your grace. I want him buried with honour, publicly, in the Temple of the Graces. The sons of the Harpy will hear that message. Make them very angry. Angry snakes lash out. Makes chopping off their heads that much easier. In Marine, a member mm -hmm. of the Unsullied, known as White Rat, is killed by a member of the Sons of the Harpy, which is a militant group who opposed Daenerys' rule in Marine, and Grey Worm is tasked with finding the killer. Dario and his Darzo Lorak return from Yunkai and tell Daenerys that the Wise Masters will turn power over to a council of former slaves and masters in exchange for the reopening of uh, Marine's fighting pits, and Daenerys, of course, rejects this offer. Daenerys then visits Rhaegal and Viserion, where she left them underneath the city, but discovers that they're kind of upset by her presence, to put it one way or another, and would prefer to be alone in their room. So, uh, my main question for you, actually, about Marine this week is, um, did you think that was Grey Worm? Because loads of other people did at the time. <laughs> I, I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, they'd, uh, that they'd changed his actor and uh, <laughs> that th th he was killed. But no, no, it's uh, it's White Rat, not Grey Worm. Stupid. God. <sighs> Wrong colour and animal, Lizzie. God. Could you not get it right? Um, the... I just want to mention, actually, though, before that, the scene of the harpy being ripped off the pyramid. Mm. This is, like, the biggest CGI thing I think the show has done in terms of size, like an, an entirely computer-generated moment where the pyramid is all computer-generated, the harpy's computer-generated, mm. the, the slide thing that the, you know the 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 sort of the uh, the ramp that they get it to slide down all cg and it feels so huge it, it just yeah, it just well, feels so big 
Well, they had a, a mammoth in the last season and, you know, giants. So I don't think it's I don't think it's that much of a step up. It's still very impressive, but very, it's not yeah. like, oh my god, they've got CGI money now. It's like, yeah, well, they've had it for a while. Yes. And now they are well, after the success of season three and the Red Wedding, I think they were given a lot of money for seasons for four and five, and mm, now they're really beginning to. I can imagine. Yeah, really beginning to flex those financial muscles a little bit more. This is again what I mean about this being era two. The production just yes. goes woof. All of a sudden, it stops being a TV show and it starts being like. Well, I mean, it's still a TV show, but like it, the the size of the production goes from being TV sized to film sized in terms mm. of scale, uh, blockbuster size. Um, so yeah, it's not Grey Worm. We've established that. Um, but the Sons of the Harpy. What 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 notes have you got about those people? I mean, I, well, I didn't really know much about them, but it's, it sort of makes sense that they're the. Um, are they like? So they're an insurgency of like former masters. Is that right? Uh, yeah, they're people who. Well, what we'll say for now, and it all gets revealed. Um, but what we'll say mm. for now is that they are. A group of Slavers Bay residents who opposed Daenerys's rule and values, and so they've they formed okay. together uh, in the background in season four, and now they've decided to, as uh, Daenerys sort of says, you know, um, about uh, killing snakes when they strike out. They've decided to start mobilizing, and uh, they're they're in with uh, the sex workers and brothel workers of Marine. Um, mm-hmm. as as a kind of trap and sent, trying to send messages and stuff like that. Um, a couple of interesting lines, I think, in this episode where Daenerys is referred to as a, a conqueror. I think they're, they're carrying over the theme from season four where Daenerys, it's all well and good. You know, we are following her her values and we believe in the the mission that she has to end slavery, but, you know, there are people there who maybe see her as a bit of a... uh, someone someone who doesn't belong there, and so... Yeah, yeah. We're seeing more real consequences of that. Um, uh, Daenerys clearly has uh, a good idea about herself where she's saying she's not a politician, she's a queen. Like, she's not come to negotiate Mm. with slave masters. (laughs) She's come to basically just you know, end their evil ways without much negotiation. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I guess it's kind of a continuation of what we saw in season four, particularly at the end. You know, it's like, it's Daenerys seeing the consequences of her own leadership and also meeting people who were like, you know, I was I was fine before you turned up and now I've got, you know, a dead daughter and no no money and, and all this stuff. And it's worth, you know, it is worth remembering that if you've got loads of unsullied sort of wandering through the streets of Marine, they're under military rule. Yes. They're bound to not be happy with that. And, and yeah, it's, I think as much as, like, you know, sometimes they want to betray Daenerys as this kind of saviour, this paragon of good, it kind of clashes with her actual demeanour sometimes, which is almost like standoffish and you know you will you will do as i say so because i am the queen and whatever i say goes yeah yeah this is this is um daenerys reaping what she sows yeah i think so and then i think you know she gets maybe a little warning uh from dario and then subsequently from her dragons which is the a dragon queen 
with no dragons, is she that mm. special? And I think the yeah, yeah. the scene with her and Dario in bed is great. Um, D- Dario is is a curious advisor for Daenerys because he doesn't tell her what he, what she wants to hear, and not, neither do the others. But I feel like he understands her a little bit better than her other advisors, and he can say things to her like, "Actually, you should betray your values for this, and you yeah, should reopen yeah. the fighting pitch. You should just do this because it's." It's the done thing. You've already ruffled enough feathers. You can't rule unless you're willing to negotiate and compromise and understand systems and stuff. And he's been on at her about this ever since the start of season four, where he's trying to hand her those flowers and he's saying, look, you can't rule a place if you don't understand it. So, you know, try and understand it. And he's still on. He's still going on at her about that. I think it's important and then he delivers his backstory about how he ends up in the second sons and it's mostly just born becomes a slave becomes a second son but it did make me realize how many of the men on daenerys's council are there because they are violent or have succeeded through violence and so even though they are often there to temper daenerys when she's saying like oh go to yunkai and raise the city to the ground and then jorah's there and he's like actually you know we could just send a negotiation party and so it's interesting to see Hisdar and Mossador put into this dynamic where Grey Worm, soldier, Dario, soldier, Barristan Selmy, soldier, Jorah, former slaver, has been a soldier. So to see Mossador, a former slave, and Hisdar Zalorak, um, who's one of the noblemen, and Missande, mm. of course, uh, it's. Yeah, yeah. She has an interesting array. Of, I just can't believe how many characters there are in Daenerys' little bit of the story. <laughs> um, but I think that it's interesting and Dario to sort of say, look, your council is full of men who... He doesn't say this, but I think the implication in his words is that her council's full of men who are where they are because of violence and Dario is where he is because of violence. And, you know, no, it's not a good thing to come from violence, but... He, you know, Dario has risen to the top of the Great Pyramid of Marine and is the boyfriend of the Dragon Queen because of, you know, because of how successful he's been carrying out acts of violence. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, I just, I just found that interesting. I don't know how important it is, but um, it, it was just an interesting little thing I thought about while, I, while I was watching the scenes in Marine. <laughs> and it's also something we've kind of covered before, if only briefly, about. She has all these people in her council and it's like, how long can you sustain that without it being sort of too many cooks situation where they're all clashing and you can never get anything done because you're just stuck in this endless battle between, you know, one ideology and another ideology and then it just descends into chaos and... Before you know it, you're the leader of nothing. Oh, and also, just really quickly, um, what did you think of the dragon scene this week? It's fine. It's kind of brief. The jump scare mm-hmm. is the jump scare. Uh, I is. feel like we've not really gone any further than where we were in the last episode, which is just Daenerys has left the dragons underground and they're not happy about it. <laughs> yeah, not happy about it is an understatement. It's like they're, they actively tried to injure her in this episode. Then bend the knee and save your people. They followed me because they respected me, because they believed in me. The moment I kneel for a southern king, that's all gone. And how many tens of thousands are out there right now 
How many women? How many children? And you won't go out and rescue them because why? You're afraid of looking afraid. Oh, I am afraid. No shame in that. Alright then, we finish up this week at Castle Black, where Stannis Baratheon has now taken up residence at the castle, and he attempts to persuade Jon Snow to convince Mance Raider to bend the knee, but despite Jon's pleas, Mance refuses, and despite knowing he'll be burned alive as punishment, stubbornly just accepts his fate, uh, stands on the pyre, ready to be burned. However, when the flames begin to rise high, he panics and becomes a bit distressed and realises he's probably bitten off more than he can chew. But with the situation unable to be reversed, John decides to fire an arrow into Mance's chest, which kills him mercifully before the flames take him. Uh, I really like the stuff at King's Landing this week. I love Stannis and John opposite each other. I think it's a really interesting character pairing that mm. we've not considered before but it's a kid who fancies himself as a bit of a leader against a grown man who fancies himself as a bit of a king yeah and i just i just love watching their scenes together and the dialogue really flows between them i think they have really interesting chemistry together and then there's a really good scene between john and mance raider where they also have good chemistry together, despite very limited screen time. And mm. it's a very interesting and long conversation. And I think it's the longest conversation in the whole episode. I think it takes about five minutes total screen time. And there's some really good lines in it, like, uh, isn't their survival more important than your pride? Or the freedom to make my own mistakes was all I wanted. Um, and obviously, you know, Mance is being an idiot here, but, like, you know, in a way that we can understand. And we spend time learning about why he's being an idiot and he's kind of rationalized his own thoughts to us by the end of the episode and yeah it's better to be an idiot than die but not in Mance's head and you can understand where he's coming from but first of all I want to ask you about John and Stannis's uh, conversation and the fact that Stannis has made this decision to burn Mance rather than just have him as a prisoner. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, you know, Stannis is the new guy in town. He obviously needs to prove himself and that he's not just going to stand back and, you know, have dissenters just rotting away in prison because what does that what does that get him? Hmm. He's got, I think in his mind, he, like, there's nothing Mance could give him that's worth keeping him in prison for. No, there isn't really. Um, his and men, I think all. But- like, he well, could get his men anyway. That, yeah. And ultimately, I think Mance is still kind of competition for him in his eyes. Yes, um, because wildlings are a problem for northern lords, and if Stannis yeah. means to take the north, as Bruce Bolton said in the trailer, uh, then it would become a problem for him. But it's kind of funny that, you know, John went out to kill him last week uh, in the season finale, and now he's got what he wanted, but it's not really what he wanted uh, I don't think he likes it. It's like um, Cersei as well, where Cersei got what she wanted last week and she doesn't like it, and Jon's got what she got he wanted this week, and he didn't like the look of that either, really. Yeah, um, yeah. Again, he's, he ha- he does have a lot of respect for Mance after all. Um, the thing I noticed, um, it's a scene uh, with Jon and Melisandre in the lift going up to <laughs> the top of the wall, which is a great scene. I love the interaction yeah. between them. I love the curious interest that she has in him and how creepy she is with it. Are you a virgin? <laughs> no. Oh, that's good. Um, but 
the one thing I noticed whenever Melisandre was on screen was how muted the colours are now. Her dress is nearly grey. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, this red dress is just so, so muted. Um, and it's like, I'm not saying that the early seasons were overly saturated, but it feels like we've gone a bit grimdark uh, But also, you, you have to you have to imagine, right, they've been wandering through the, the frozen wilderness for weeks or even months. Like, yeah, it's not going to stay, like, vibrant red, you know? No, it's not. Um, but it, I, do, I do think it's kind of cool that... Um, it's just a funny little production thing uh, to notice that they've clearly they've not just set about a new era for the story but a new era for, for a production as well um, yeah that's true I think these scenes are driven a lot actually by these characters just interacting in the first place like Stannis and John, Davos and John, Melisandre and John, all having yeah. conversations with each other and it's just like four episodes ago you never would have even two episodes ago you never would have imagined any of these guys talking to each other at any point in the story and so I thought that was great my favourite line of the episode actually the delivery and the the sound design is um, the sun drops fast this time of year hurry Jon Snow I just think it there's a little moment where the, the, the shot hangs over Jon's face and it's like you know how we've been we have kind of talked about John's role in the show a little bit. I am not surprised up to this point where even though he's a heartthrob and a leader, the show wants you to like John more than you currently do because so far you have only named him as winner of the week once and I think yeah. that the show wants you to like him more than you do and it was a it was an episode that was named after him as well it was lord snow in episode mm. uh, in season 1 he has all the the attributes of being the protagonist but his screen yeah. time yeah. is outside the top 10 characters mm. and but i think that that line where the camera fixes on him and it says hurry john snow and it's like this it does it makes him seem like a kid who's kind of on not borrowed time as such but i feel like it feeds into his character a lot this kid who's constantly racing against something and constantly fighting Mm -hmm. against something whether it's internal or external and i just think that at this point in the show where it's like halfway and maybe they're trying to prep john a little differently this season you know give him a slightly different role and because again i find it interesting that john is the person who's chosen to go and speak to stannis as much as he was stannis was inquiring about uh the wildlings that john has had relationships with like egret and man's raider i do find it interesting that alice thorne wasn't called up yeah that's true and it does it feels like we, we did we i feel i feel this way about cersei in this episode and i feel this way about varys and i feel this way about john where it feels like the show is ready to just reposition them slightly in their own storylines it, it, it yeah it, it feels like something's kind of made way where varys is now in an empty space in the story because he's no longer in king's landing tywin has moved out of cersei's way and the wildlings have kind of the the wildling conflict has kind of moved out of john's way and it feels like Mm. all the prep they did in season four with john where they gave him his own storyline and sent him off to go and rescue 
or uh, go and kill the mutineers and inadvertently rescue Bran and be a bit of a leader and a bit of a heartthrob and they're given the big emotional uh, death scene with Egret in episode 9 of season 4. It just feels like they've moved the block slightly and this line, this hurry Jon Snow, it feels like they've, they want you to like him even more than they've already tried to and yeah. I'm curious to see how you respond to the next few episodes with John, whether whether it works on you, what the show is trying to do with him in this little tiny bit with him and Stannis, while Stannis is at yeah. Castle Black, I, I am I am curious about that. We shall see. And the death scene itself, I don't know what you, what, I don't know, I don't know what you made of that. Was it a, a a good scene in your estimation? The idea of John Mercy killing again. That's another thing. John Mercy kills somebody. And it's like, oh, yeah. yes, a, a good person would do that. And you, do you know what I mean? Like, what would you make of the death scene? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I thought it was a really good scene. And I think it's kind of... I've also got in my notes that it's a shame that we didn't see um, Man's Raider more in the show because I always found his performances to be compelling. He brought this sort of energy which was somehow, like, warm and intimidating at the same time. And yeah. Kind of, it kind of seemed like another good foil for John, who John seemed to want to both kill him but also to impress him, like a an unlikely sort of father figure. So, yeah, um, the scene itself it's really well done. Like Kieran Hines, he kind of put, puts over that he's sort of burning. Well, he's about to burn to death, but he doesn't let on that you know there's any fear in him. He's just sort of stoic in it until the heat starts to rise and he, you can hear him sort of whimpering a little bit yeah. you never really hear him scream out in pain until just like right at the end before the arrow hits yeah and man's yeah, protecting I think it's his really dignity well yeah and you even get a look at Stannis he sort of looks respectfully at man's raider like yeah I I acknowledge your, your sacrifice even though you know, I don't agree with your decision, obviously. Mm. But um, yeah, there's. I suppose it just hints at the growing dissent between, as you say, John, who sees himself as a leader, and Stannis, who sees himself as a king. Yeah. All right then. Considering that's where the episode ends, I think that's where our episode is going to end as well. So, Lizzie, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask for your line of the episode this week. Uh, my line of the episode this week is from Mantrader, actually. Cool. It is um, the freedom to make my own mistakes was all I ever wanted. Yeah, I think that's a great line. One of my favorite. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite ones in the episode. Uh, cool. Yeah, I don't have any. Don't have any challenge to that. A shame that Varys's one liners maybe missed out. But well, there was, th- that's the problem. There was too many from Paris. <laughs> I couldn't choose one. But um, well, more on that in a minute. So, who is your loser? It's really hard to pick a loser of this week, you know, because there's no like overt villain of this episode. I don't think. No. So I actually put the. Um, the unnamed son of the harpy, which I feel like is a bit of a cop out. I could give you a named character if you like. No, no, I think son of the harpy is uh, is a a fine nomination. Son of the harpy. <laughs> okay, well, I did and give you who, the cleaning who, boy for a few episodes. So that's true. That is true. Um, 
so who's your who's your winner? My winner of the episode is Varys. Uh, yeah, okay. Just with the uh, the one line is enough, or was it a bit more? Well, it was a bit more. I think it was just seeing him, as you say, out in you know out of King's Landing and feeling like he had a lot more breathing room, a lot more space to actually be himself rather than just being, you know, coy and unassuming sort of 100% of the time because you have to be, you're around, like you're a spy and you're around other spies. But I think it's kind of given him this new lease of life, this freedom. And as much as he's got to cart around a nihilistic drunk in Tyrion, I'm, yeah, I'm... I'm actually coming out of this episode most excited about Varys, of all people. Well, that is a first win for Varys as well. Yeah, yeah. So, cool. Ah, It really is a new era. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Next week, we will be back with Season 5, Episode 2, which is The House of Black and White. We have been talking about the wars to come. If you want to watch along with us, we're doing episodes week by week. Uh, Mm -hmm. We look forward to speaking to you next time. Yeah, see you soon.